Microsoft, the BMS productivity cloud and gaming company, has taken a massive bet on AI. Everyone's paying close attention to its partnership with OpenAI, and the technical community has been amazed by its release of some of the first truly useful and broadly deployed AI products, such as GitHub Copilot. Its full-on attack on web search with the new LLM-powered Bing Chat is making its incumbent competitors dance. Today on No Priors, we're thrilled to speak with Kevin Scott, CTO of Microsoft, and the driving force behind their AI strategy. Kevin's leadership, both at Microsoft and prior at LinkedIn, Google, and AdMob, as a technologist, is especially inspiring to me, given his distance traveled from his childhood home in rural central Virginia. In 2020, he published a book, Reprogramming the American Dream, about making AI service all. Kevin, welcome to No Priors. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Can you start by sharing with us some of your story? How does one go from a farming community in Virginia, where your parents didn't attend college, to CTO of Microsoft? Uh, I don't know. I think it is a very unlikely journey. Uh, it's like certainly not a thing that I uh, I ever could have imagined. I, I think part of it is I was just super fortunate to be wired like a nerd uh, and growing up when I grew up. So, you know, when I was a teenager in the early 80s, uh, personal computing was uh, was happening. And like that was the thing that I happened to fixate on. Um, and even though we were relatively poor, I managed to, you know, scrape together enough bucks to get myself a personal computer that I could have and just tinker with all the time. And it was uh, like a, it was a Radio Shack color computer too, like one of these things with chiclet keys that you, uh, you actually connected to a television. Like I had it hooked up to a 13 inch <laughs> TV and it had a cassette recorder that you uh, stored and loaded your programs on. And, you know, and and it was just the thing that I was obsessed with. And I, I stayed obsessed with computers uh, from then on. And it was just me trying to find a path at each step where I could work on the most interesting thing that someone was uh, dumb enough to give me permission to go work on. And, it, and again, it's a, it's a lot of luck. Like, there's no way you can uh, plan a path from rural central Virginia to CTO of Microsoft. But, you know, it, I think it does help to have a high level vision in your head for what it is that you want to do. Like just knowing what you're aiming for always helps. What was that vision for you besides like, you know, obsessed with computers, wanted to work on them? Yeah, I, I more or less had two of them. So the first vision I had when I was a teenager was I wanted to be a computer science professor. So I just looked at what computer scientists did and thought this is the most amazing stuff I've ever seen. And I went to a science and technology high school. And, and the way that it worked where I lived is uh, like a really rural area. And so the science and technology it was a governor's school, so it was centrally located in uh, each high school in these four or five counties that surrounded the governor's school got to send two students each. And so I was one of the two students that got selected from my high school to go to this thing. And my computer science professor there was this guy, uh, Dr. Tom Morgan. Uh, and like, I just sort of felt like he'd opened up this entire new world to me. Like it was just thrilling to learn all of this stuff. And I was like, yeah, I want to be like Dr. Morgan. Uh, and, and a lot of this stuff for me is about, you know, like who those influential role models have been uh, in your life. And so as soon as I like met Dr. Morgan, I was like, oh, I should just go be a computer science professor. And that was the path I was on until I was about 30 years old. Um, when 
I, you know, I was a compiler optimization and computer architecture programming languages person, and I got pretty disillusioned with what being a computer science professor actually was relative to what I wanted to do. Like, I just wanted to have a lot of impact. And my perception at the time when I was making these decisions was that you can have a lot of impact as a computer science professor. Um, and, and the impact was actually great, but it wasn't the impact that the system appreciated. Uh, so, th- so like the impact that you can actually have is inspire students to go pursue these careers and they will go on to do much greater things than uh, than you've done yourself. And like that, that to me was the greatest impact, but it was the least appreciated part of being a computer science professor, uh, like back in the you know, 2000s uh, when I was you know, making these big decisions. And so I decided to leave and I didn't at the time know what next actually was going to be. Like it, it had been my mission for almost 15 years at that point, And like I was a little bit lost. Uh, and I saw that a bunch of my academic buddies uh, were all working at this startup called Google. Um, and I didn't understand why they were working at Google. Like Google was, you know, was like some little box and you typed a keywords in and it gave you 10 links. <laughs> like, how is that hard? Uh, but, but you know, Urs Holtzla, who was a compiler person, and Jeff Dean, who was a compiler person, and Alan Eustace, who was a compiler person, like all of these people who, you know, who I went to conferences with and whose papers I read. And uh, I was like, all right, well, maybe I should send my resume in. And like, I sent my resume in and uh, got called to do a bunch of interviews. And they, uh, like, it, it was the best interviewing experience I've ever had because they they took what must have been every compiler person in the company at the time and put them on my interview panel. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Uh, like I had the best day interviewing there. And I got this job offer and I went, uh, I, I got this choice. They just started Google New York, uh, which was the first office outside of Mountain View. And they were like, you can come to Mountain View or you can go be, you know, the 10th person in this uh, New York office. And my wife and I wanted to live in New York more than we wanted to live in Mountain View. And so uh, that's what we did. And after I got there, this is where the new mission came in. I just, so we, we were hiring these brilliant, brilliant people at the time. And and the way that we did hiring was kind of crazy. It's like, all right, well, if you're smart, just come work here. And like, we have no idea like what exactly it is uh, you're going to do. And you like came in and you sort of sorted yourself out. And we had these people who were so accomplished and so brilliant. And they would come in and choose to work on things that that just were going to have no impact at all. Like they, they were intellectually very interesting, but they were just sort of silly and that they were never going to connect with anything that moved the needle for the company, which was exactly the problem I was trying to get away from, uh, you know, in, in being a, like a research computer scientist. Uh, and so I sorted myself out. Like I found a, like a pragmatic thing to go work on. Like, you know, we've, I, I won't go into the details of what it is, but, you know, like the whole team won a Google Founders Award, which was a big deal uh, for like solving this like very sort of unsexy problem with a bunch of very fancy computer science, um, which was one of the things I think Google uh, Google did really well. And then I was like, OK, well, I should just go help more people sort themselves out as well. And that's when I became a manager. And then it, from that point on, it was all about like, hey, I want to. 
I, I want to help as many engineers as I possibly can, uh, like make sure that their work lines up with something that's, you know, both interesting and meaningful. I think that uh, it's actually pretty under-discussed the degree to which early Google had so many academics actually running important parts of the company. Yeah, I think Urs is a great example, and I think there's others. And so I haven't actually seen anything like that since until maybe now, more recently at OpenAI, there's more academics. Or, you know, you feel like the research community is popping back up again, but it's been maybe a decade or two since that's happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that, that's actually a really, really great observation. So when, when I go sit in OpenAI, it really reminds me of early Google days. And it's about the same size Google was when I joined. And so like, I, I, I couldn't figure it out for a while. And I was like, wow, this is like really giving me like, you know, early Google nostalgia. And, and you know, the, the conclusion to draw from that is like, not that they're the same companies or they're trying to solve the same problem. It's just sort of the energy of the place and like who they've chosen to hire and like. Yeah, yeah it's the first time I've seen like string theorists getting hired again. Yeah. And the computer science roles. Yeah, 100%. You know, since Google days. Yeah. You, you and I, uh, like, probably both worked with Jonathan Zunger, who uh, works at Microsoft right now. And, like, I, I remember, like, it's like, all right, Jonathan's working on this big distributed file system stuff. And, like, what's his degree? Oh, yeah, he's a, like, string theory guy. <laughs> yeah. So a big part of your mission for, you know, the last decades has been um, helping string theorists and other engineers uh, <laughs> figure out how to be how to be useful in their orgs. <laughs> the other the other part seems to be, of course, like um, actual technical direction, right? Deciding like what's worth investing in. Yeah. And, and you've worked on machine learning products for a really long time, like ads auctions at Google, recommendations at LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. Was there a moment when you decided or you realized personally that AI should be a key technical bet for Microsoft? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been at Microsoft a little over six years now, so almost six and a half years. Uh, and like pretty pretty quickly, it was obvious that AI was going to be like very, very, very important to the future of the company. I think you know, Microsoft already understood that before I got there. And then it was just how do you focus all of the energy on the company on the right thing? Because we had a lot of AI investment and a lot of AI energy, and it was sort of very diffuse uh, when I got there. Uh, so no lack of IQ and actually no lack of capital spending and everything else. But it was just you know kind of getting peanut buttered across uh, a whole bunch of stuff. And so the, the thing that really catalyzed what we were doing is, I mean, maybe this is a little bit too, uh, too technical, but like, you know, we, before... Before I got there, the technical thing that had been happening with some of these AI systems that to me was very interesting is transfer learning was starting to work. So like you were going from this mode of, you know, the flavor of statistical machine learning that I cut my teeth on, uh, like in my first projects at Google, which was, you know, you have a particular domain of data and like you have a particular machine learning uh, model architecture that you are uh, you know, your training and a, like a particular way that you're going to go do the deployment and measurement and whatnot. And it's all like, you know, siloed to a like a, a like a use case or a domain or an application to seeing AI systems that you could train on one set of data and use for things uh, for multiple purposes. And you saw a little bit of that with some of the cool stuff that DeepMind was doing with reinforcement learning with, uh, you know, play transfer uh, across some of the gaming applications that they were building. But like the really exciting thing was when it started working for language with 
Elmo and then, uh, you know, Bert and then Roberta and Turing and, you know, like a bunch of things that we were doing. And that was the point where there were so many language-based uh, applications that you could imagine building on top of these things if it continued to get better and better. And so we were just sort of looking for evidence that it was going to continue to get better and better. And as soon as we found it, like we just started like all in. That was everything from doing a partnership with OpenAI to, uh, you know, like at one point I seized the entire GPU budgets for the whole company. And I was like, we will no longer mm -hmm. peanut butter these resources around. Like we will focus them because it's all capital intensive. It's like we will just allocate these things to things where we have really, really strong evidence-based conviction that like a particular path is going to benefit from adding more capital scale. I remember uh, it must have been like five years back now. We were at dinner and you know, now GPU capacity is the talk of the technical town, right? But you were like, I asked you what your like most pressing issue was. And you're like, how am I going to spend on GPUs this year? Yeah. And how am I going to distribute those GPUs? Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it was, and it has been. It has it certainly hasn't gotten any easier. <laughs> but, I mean, so, Eli, like, I think, you know, the question you were asking is, like, how we decided to do the OpenAI partnership. And so, like, the, the reason that we did the partnership was twofold. So, one is with transfer learning actually working, you can imagine building a platform for all of this stuff so that – you're building single things where you're amortizing the cost of the things across a whole bunch of different applications. And because we have a hyperscale cloud, uh, like one of the things that I was really, really uh, interested in and like beyond interested, like it felt, you know, just like an existential thing is how do you make sure that the way that you're building your cloud all the way from you know, your computing infrastructure, your networks, uh, your software frameworks and whatnot, how can it really serve a whole bunch of interests beyond your own. And so like we felt like in addition to the high ambition things that we were doing inside of the company that we needed uh, like high ambition partners. And when we looked around, like OpenAI was clearly the highest ambition partner that was in the field. You know, and I think still their ambition is just breathtaking in what it is that they're trying to accomplish. And so that was one thing. And then the second thing was like, you know, they they really had a very similar vision to the one that I had about like these things were evolving into platforms and uh, like we were able to, because we were so aligned on vision for the future, like we could figure out how to do a partnership where uh, like, even though like there's just a ton of difficult things and like, you know, I, I think there's probably some conservation law of, you know, the stress from difficulty. So it's n not like it ever goes away, but like it, it it's stress in service of a common goal. And like, that's the thing that makes good partnerships work. I think one of the stunning things about the partnership in some sense was the timing, because if I remember correctly, Microsoft made its first investment or its, its first significant investment in OpenAI right after GPT-2 launched, or right around GPT-2, and this is before GPT-3, and there was such a big step function between the two of them that I think it was less obvious in the GPT-2 days that this was going to be as important as it was. And so I'm a little bit curious, like, what were the signs that made you decide that this was a good partnership to have versus building it internally versus, uh, you know, usually as a larger company, there's the old, like, buy, build, yeah. partner kind of thinking. And so I'm just sort of curious, like, how, how you all decided to, to partner in this moment of time where it's very non-obvious and you invested a large sum of money behind that. Yeah, there and and I like I don't want to uh, like have revisionist history and like paint a rosier picture than there actually was. So there, there was a huge diversity of opinions inside of the company on the wisdom of doing uh, doing this. And so 
Satya uh, like has this thing that he talks about, uh, like no, no regrets uh, investing. So like there are things where you do the investment and like there are multiple ways to win. And like you uh, you even win a little bit when you lose. Uh, and so th- this was one of those no regrets things in that like the very, very worst thing that could happen is we would go spend a bunch of capital on uh, computing infrastructure and we would learn uh, like what to do at very high scale for building these AI training environments. And, you know, you'd have to believe something very strange about the world of AI that you wouldn't need uh, advanced computing infrastructure. Um, and then there were just multiple ways where, you know, like, and, and we had a bunch of evidence uh, that, you know, we had gathered ourselves and that OpenAI had that gave us, you know, which unfortunately I can't talk about, uh, but like that gave us, you know, pretty reasonable confidence that scale up was actually working. I, you, you've probably seen the, uh, you know, the famous uh, OpenAI compute scale paper where they sort of plot on the log scale, like how many, you know, petaflop days or, you know, whatever the you know, unit of total compute they were using on that graph that shows, uh, you know, from 2012 when we first figured out how to train models with GPUs through, you know, I think the the plot ends sometime in 2018. Uh, yeah, that, that we're you know, basically consuming 10 times compute, more compute every year for, like, training state-of-the-art models. Uh, and, and so, like, you know, you, you I just had super, super high confidence that uh, we were never going to get to the point where we're like, all right, we got enough compute. Uh. Mm-hmm. It was a very bold move. I, I think it's very striking all the amazing things Microsoft has done over the last few years in terms of just incredibly smart strategic moves that the time didn't seem obvious and now are just in hindsight, you know, really brilliant. I guess that more recent move is you announced a collaboration with NVIDIA to build a supercomputer powered by Azure. Um, infrastructure combined with NVIDIA GPUs. Could you tell us a little bit more about your supercomputing efforts in general, and then maybe a little bit more about those collaborations with both NVIDIA and um, OpenAI on the supercomputing side? Yeah, so we built our f- the first thing that we called an AI supercomputer. Uh, I think we started working on it in 2019, and we deployed it uh, at the end of that year, and it was the computing environment that GPT-3 was trained on. And, yeah, we, we had been building a, uh, like, a progressively more powerful set of these supercomputing environments. Uh, like, we built them in a way where, like, the biggest environments, just because, you know, they're, they're very capital-intensive things uh, tend to get used for one purpose. But the designs of these systems, like we we can build smaller stamps of them and they get used by lots of people. So like we have you know tons of people who are training, you know, very big models on uh, Azure compute infrastructure, both folks inside the company and, uh, you know, partners who can come in. And it, it was a thing that was like not possible to do before where you could sort of say like, Hey, I would like a, I would like a compute grid of this size with like this powerful network uh, to do my thing on. And so, you know, NVIDIA has been, you know, our compute and network partner since they bought Mellanox, uh, you know, for years now. And the, and the thing that makes that work is generation over generation. Like you're just getting better, uh, you know, uh, price performance from the systems, um, and and we work super closely with them, uh, like defining you know what the hardware requirements need to be, um, you know, in the coming generations of GPUs, because uh, like we have a pretty clear sense of where 
models are going and like what model architectures are evolving towards. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's just been a super good, super good partnership. Um, yeah, like we're we're deploying uh, Hopper now at scale, and you know, like a bunch of the features of Hopper, like you know, eight bit floating point, uh, you know, ar- arithmetic, and you know, a bunch of other things are like things that uh, you know, like we've been planning for for a while. Yeah, I guess one one last question on sort of this both supercomputer as well, as well as platform side of things is I'm a little bit curious how you view the world shifting in terms of closed source and open source models and you know, the mix that'll exist, because obviously from an Azure perspective, lots of people are running open source models on top of Azure right now. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it is an interesting thing that people are framing it as some kind of binary thing. Like, I think you're going to have a lot of both. Um, like, we, we, we still don't see any reason to believe that you're going to want to not build bigger models, uh, but like we we just know in our own deployments. Like if you look at things like Bing Chat or Microsoft 365 Copilot or GitHub Copilot, you you end up using a portfolio of models to do the work, and like you use it for performance and cost optimization reasons, and you use it for uh, you know just sort of precision and quality reasons uh, sometimes. Um, and so there's always this. Yeah, melange of things that you're uh, that you're doing, and it's never either or. I'm I'm actually really excited by what's going on with the open source community. I, I think you know my biggest question mark there is like how you go deal with uh, like all of the REI and safety uh, safety things. But like if you look at the technical innovation inside of the open source community, like it's really you know thrilling, and like you know, we. Yeah, like we we're doing some cool stuff right now. Like I was just playing around yesterday with uh, that 12 billion parameter uh, Dolly 2.0 model from Databricks, uh, which like runs quite nicely on a single machine. And like, yeah, I'm still enough of a dork to like love playing around <laughs> with things that run on single machines. Like it's you know, really, really impressive work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's super cool. How um how do you think about that from the context of enabling AI for your business customers um, outside of your core product? So is there a specific sort of B2B AI stack that's coming? Are there specific tools coming? To your point, there's safety, there's analytics, there's fine-tuning, there, you know, there's so much stuff that you could potentially provide. I'm just sort of curious how you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to turn this into some kind of weird marketing spiel, but you know, we we have this point of view that we started with this assumption that. AI is going to be a platform and the way that people are going to most usefully make or the way that people are going to make most use of the platform is by building tools that assist people with jobs. So it's like less about these fully autonomous scenarios and more about uh, assistive tech. And so the first thing that we built was GitHub Copilot, which is a coding tool, a thing where you can sort of say in natural language what you would like a piece of code to do and it emits the code and then you uh you, you as the developer uh like the same way that you would take a suggestion from a pair programmer like you scrutinize it and code review it and you know decide whether or not it makes sense for your application and you know and like that was that was the first version of GitHub Copilot that does a bunch of other things uh, now. And so the the thing that we have observed is this copilot pattern is actually pretty uh you know pretty generic um and and we we built a bunch of copilots uh since then and the way that we built them like there's a there's there's a copilot stack that looks almost like one of these osi you know networking uh diagrams and it starts with a bunch of user interface uh patterns that you have uh like they're now 
an emerging plugin ecosystem for uh, like how you extend the you know the capabilities of a copilot for things that you can't natively get out of the model. And then it is a whole stack of things, uh, you know, sort of an orchestration mechanism like Langchain is uh, you know, one of the popular open source uh, orchestrators, but like there are a bunch of open source orchestrators. Like we have uh, one that we've developed called Semantic Kernel that we've also open sourced. There is this whole fascinating world right now uh, that didn't exist nine months ago uh, around prompt construction and prompt engineering. And so like there's an entire art form and a a set of tools that that people have access to to design a meta prompt, which is sort of the standing instructions to the model to like get it to uh, conform itself to the application context uh, that it's in. Uh, like you have these new things, uh, you know, like new software development patterns, like uh, retrieval augmented generation or RAG is uh, like you know, we were doing this before it had a name uh, on it. Uh, and, you know, so it's basically a way to, uh, like, take the prompt that's flowing from the application and to inject context into the prompt that will help the model better respond. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of safety apparatus that you have. Uh, so that looks a lot like filtering on both the way down uh, as the prompt flows through the stack all the way down to the model as well as, you know, as it flows back up. Uh, so... What things are you not going to let a let the application or the user uh, send all the way down to the prompt because it's going to get a bad response back? Or like, you know, uh, what things are you going to filter out at the last uh, minute because uh, like it is a bad uh, response that has gotten all the way through? Um, you know, and sometimes like you have multiple round trips through this cycle before you like bubble the thing all the way back up to the user to get them the response that they need. And so like, you know, we, we have a point of view about what all what the stack looks like you know which microsoft tools exist that will help people uh, build these things and like what special things you have to go do in the context of an enterprise to like answer the actual direct question uh, where you know safety and data privacy and like understanding you know where the flows of data are and like which plugins can be enabled and like which can't uh like all of those things uh like I, I think are getting built out right now. And, and and like the other thing too, I'll say is like, we'll build some of this stuff and like the community is going to build a tremendous amount of it because like there's never been a platform or ecosystem where one company builds all of the useful things. Like that's just nonsense. Uh, like it's just never happened. Uh, and, and to me, it's the sort of super exciting thing to just see all of the energy that's, happening right now like i just like immediately before this call i was doing a review with uh microsoft research and it's just amazing to watch msr uh which is so many researchers are there have pivoted what they're doing research on to like these ai adjacent or ai uh like on point things uh and it feels a little bit like what msr was like when i was an intern there in 2001 uh where you, know, you you had all of these super bright people who like had the tiniest little glimpse of what the future must look like that no one else had because it was the point where the PC was racing to ubiquity and like they were just all orienting their research around like what that little glimpse was uh, that like maybe they had the earliest uh, peak at. And it just is like feels magical. Yeah, it's massive realignment of the research community right now sort of in real time. It's, it's very exciting to watch. I mean, and, and it's awe-inspiring. I mean, it's just crazy. It's hard to keep up. 
like super hard. Like we went from, I mean, th- this has been the biggest surprise for, for me is like, I just didn't realize that GPT-4 and chat GPT were going to catalyze as much of this as they have. Um, like we'd sort of kind of been expecting a bunch of this stuff. You know, chat GPT was a, 10 month old model with a little bit of RLHF on top of it. And, you know, like by, by, you know, admission, like, you know, not a beautiful user interface. It was just sort of a way to get something out there because, uh, you know, you needed some, some practice with a handful of things before the big GPT-4 launch was, uh, was coming. And like, no one really knew that it was going to blow up this way. And it's only five months old. That was only five months ago, which is shocking. I think everybody forgets how little time has passed. Yeah, just shocking. And, but but it is the open source community and like the the you know big tech community. I think at its best is like you know everybody is sort of realigning to like what I think is you know unlike some of the other you know faddish things that have happened over the past uh, handful of years. Like I don't think this is a fad. Like this is this is real. Yeah, um, I uh, launched my new fund about six months ago with this AI focus, and a few weeks later, ChatGPT comes out. And I'd say even the people who were very prepared, like hopefully somewhat prepared yeah. to go like try to keep up or be part of that um, massive shift, like feel constantly upended. But it is it is very it's the most fun time to be in technology in decades. Yeah, it, look, it's all it's also I will say a disconcerting time uh, to be in technology because so many things are changing at once. It's changing at a pace that, you know, you probably like e- even me, like I, I'm, I'm, I think I might be in one of the better positions uh, to like feel like I'm kind of in control of what's going on. And like, I'm not in control at all, uh, like of the pace. Uh, and so it must really be disconcerting to folks, you know, trying to keep up with everything that's going on. And in some cases, like it's forcing people to change their worldview about things like worldviews that they've held for a really long time. I think it's honestly harder for some machine learning people than it is, uh, you know, for like a brand new entrepreneur who's, you know, just looking for an interesting thing to go do because it, it is a very different way for a machine learning team to do its work. And it's like been hard, you know, even for some of the people at Microsoft who have had plenty of time to think about the transition to like get adjusted to like this new way of doing things. I want to ask you one more question um, that is sort of advice for people making the adjustment in a certain sense. And then, uh, you know, talk about your book, talk about the macro and such. Uh, Microsoft has a um, unbelievably wide portfolio of products. And now you're on the other side of all the infrastructure questions, figuring out the, you know, organization of adoption of all these capabilities into that portfolio, right? Um, I talk to, you know, friends who run large companies, started large companies all the time that are also figuring out how to do this. How do you, how do you organize that effort? What, what advice do you have for them? I think you have to be, you have to remember that some things have changed and some things haven't changed at all. Um, and, and so, like one of the confusing things that I think there is for folks uh, that that many people get wrong is like models aren't products uh, and infrastructure isn't a product. And so, you know, you, you, you need to very quickly understand what it is this new type of infrastructure and this new platform is capable of. But uh, that does not mean that you get to not do the hard work of understanding like what a good product is that uses it. 
it, like what one of the things I tell a lot of people is probably the place where the most interesting products are are where you've made the phase change from Im, uh, from impossible to hard. So like something that like literally you couldn't do at all before this technology exists has become hard now because like the the things that have gone from impossible to easy are probably not interesting. And like the, the my my frivolous example of this is uh, when smartphones uh, you know, came on the market 15, 16, 17 years ago now. Like it's, uh, yeah, 2007, I, I guess, was iPhone launch, right? So uh, 16 years ago, almost. Um, and then a year later, you had the App Store. So like the first apps were like things that had gone from uh, impossible to easy. Um, and like they just... Yeah, we we barely remember them. Like there were all these fart apps. There was like you know, uh, like this app I had on my phone at one point that was called the Woo button. You pressed it and it like did a Woo like Ric Flair. Uh, like th- those are those are not businesses. Like they're just you know sort of like these f- explorations that people are doing. Like the the things that have made. The smartphone platform are the hard things that uh, like went from impossible to hard. They, they also are kind of the non-obvious things. Like they weren't even the things that the builders of the platform imagined. Like you know, we 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 don't even think the the original applications on these platforms, like the things that launched uh, when the platform first launched, like those are not the interesting things anymore. Like your smartphone is way more than just an SMS app and a web browser and a mail client. Uh, like the thing that makes it interesting is TikTok and Instagram and WhatsApp and DoorDash. And and like they were all of these hard things that people had to go built now that they were possible. And so like, I think that's thing number one to you know, hold in your head either as an entrepreneur or as a business that's trying to adopt this stuff. It's not like how I go sprinkle some LLM fairy dust on my existing, you know, products and do some stupid incremental thing. And, and like, you know, and I shouldn't even call it stupid. Like maybe the incremental things are fine. Uh, but like the really interesting things are, are, are non-obvious and very not incremental. And so that, that is the hard thing for us is you have an entire group of people who are smart and like they can see all of the things that are possible. And so the hard, the the challenge is to steer them towards like the hard, meaningful, uh, you know, sort of interesting, non-obvious uh, things that are possible, like not the, you know, like things that are incremental that, you know, just going to burn up a bunch of GPU cycles and prevent you from, you know, and a bunch of I- product IQ that will prevent you from doing the things that really matter. If we we sort of zoom out to, like, non-technical audiences, you wrote a book in 2020, Re- Reprogramming the American Dream. Can you describe who you want to read the book and, and what you hope they'll take away from it? I – when I wrote the book, it was not for people like us. Well, the, the, so the premise of the book is that I, I grew up in rural central Virginia. My you know dad was a construction worker. His dad was a construction worker. His dad was a construction worker. Um, yeah, my maternal grandfather like ran an appliance repair business and had been a farmer earlier in his life. So the the thing the thing that was true for everyone who was in my life, uh, like you know neighbors, members of the community, is like you know they're just smart, entrepreneurial, ingenious people using the best tools that they could lay their hands on to go do things that mattered to them that like created opportunity for them and you know sort of solve problems for you know their their communities um 
And I believe that, like, particularly this platform vision of AI, where it's sort of getting cheaper and it's getting more accessible all the time, you know, like things, you know, like this stuff that we were chatting about a, uh, you know, a few minutes ago about what I did at Google. Like, I, you know, came in with a graduate degree. I was mathematically sophisticated. Uh, and yet, to do the thing that I, the first project that I did, which was a, you know, like a machine learning uh, classifier thing in 2003. Uh, 2003, 2004, like that was, you know, stacks of like super technical, you know, research papers and, you know, uh, there's elements of statistical machine learning, you know, like you read it cover to cover and then you go write code for six months. Like high school student could do the whole damn project in four hours on a weekend now. Uh, like it's just, you know, like and, and what's happening, like that aperture of who can use the tools is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And so like the book was trying to get people to be inspired by this notion that uh, like don't be daunted and intimidated or scared by uh, by AI, like go embrace it and like try to plug it into the things that you're doing. And like maybe, you know, we, we, we've got a shot at having – more equitable distribution of, you know, who's benefiting from the platform as it emerges. If you were going to add an update chapter for the last few years where so much has happened, what what would you focus on? Well, it's it's really interesting how much of it I think is still true. And like I had this anxiety the whole time that I was writing the book that I was going to, by the time I had the manuscript and it hit the presses, that it, all of it was going to be out of date. Like the real problem I had is like by the time it hit the presses, we had uh, we had a, a global pandemic and uh, it literally went, <laughs> it, it hit the presses uh, the week that everything shut down. So like you literally couldn't buy it. Uh, like Amazon wasn't delivering anything other than essential packages and every bookstore in the country was closed. So, I mean, it's a little bit surprising, uh, you know, to me, like how many of the you know, ideas that, you know, we have a platform, platform's getting more powerful, it's getting more accessible, um, like actually the unit economics of it are getting better, uh, you know, like what you can do for, you know, a per token of inference uh, is like getting higher, uh, you know, so like I know everybody's like in this frenzy around GPUs and like, which is this very expensive, uh, expensive thing, but like all of this optimization work is happening where you're, you're able to squeeze more out of the compute that you have and the compute's getting cheaper. So, yeah, I mean, the update that I would I would add is that, and and it may be an update that I do. Like, it probably won't be this book, but like, I'm I'm sort of contemplating uh, like writing uh, something right now. I I do think that the the public dialogue around AI right now is missing so many of the opportunities that we have to go deploy the technology for good. Um. Yeah, like all of the articles uh, that you you know you read in the newspapers are you know around the responsible AI stuff, which is important, and like the regulatory stuff, which is important. Uh, but yeah, we should have a few articles in there as well about uh, Sal Khan's TED talk, which is just amazing, like unbelievably good. And just for you know folks who may not have seen it, which they should go see, is like you know his problem is perfect for AI. So it's this two sigmas problem, this idea that students who have access to high quality individualized instruction 
performed substantially better than those who haven't, like, controlled for everything else. Just for our listeners' sake, the Two Sigma problem was this study by a guy named Benjamin Bloom, which showed that your average tutored student performed above 98% of students in a control class, which is one teacher to 30 students, like a normal American classroom, uh, with reduced variance, which is amazing. Yeah, and if you believe that that's true, then you can also believe that every student, uh, every learner in the world uh, deserves to have access to that individualized, high-quality instruction at no cost, which seems like a reasonable thing. And then when you think about how you go realize that in the world, like the only way that you can realistically do it is with something like AI. And so there's so many problems that have that characteristic where we can all agree that like it is a universal good to do this. And then if you think about how to do it, like you must conclude that AI is uh, like part of the solution. Like that, that is the, you know, the reason I get up every morning and deal with people yelling at me about like, give me my GPUs, uh, you know, for, for the fifth year in a row. Um, it is because of, of things exactly like that. And it doesn't mean that when you talk about that and you're hopeful and optimistic about those things or even hopeful and optimistic about all of the things that, you know, venture, venture back companies are going to go do or like the way that businesses are going to reinvent themselves that you are also say, you know, f- you know, giving the middle finger to, you know, the responsible AI concerns or, you know, the things that people care about on the regulatory front. Like you can care about both of those things at the same time. But like the, the thing that I can tell you is like there is no historical precedent where you get all of these beneficial things by starting from pessimism first. Like pe- pessimism doesn't doesn't get you to optimistic outcomes. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like to your point, a lot of the dialogue is really lacking from global um, education equity, global health equity, like all these things that AI as a platform should be able to produce because it's it's cheaper, it's personalized, it can do things at the level of a of a human in many cases in terms of being a great teacher or a great you know physician's assistant, et cetera. And so it really feels like that message is lost. And you know, I think a lot of people don't mention enough how we're almost hopefully going to enter this golden age if we let this technology actually bloom and be useful. I guess the the question that I always have on my mind relative to all this stuff is, given the capabilities that AI continues to accumulate, how do you think about 20 years from now in terms of the best roles for people? And in particular, I think about it in the context of my kids. I'm like, okay, normally two years ago, I would have told my, I would have told my, my kids, go study computer science. It's the language of the future. What do you think is the right advice to give people you know, in terms of what to study and uh, that, that will be the things that will be most durable relative to to the change that's coming. Yeah, I I think, so 20 years is a tough time horizon. You know, and, really I, and I, I think if any of us are honest with ourselves, like if you rewind 20 years and you sort of imagine the predictions you would have made then, like would you have gotten here? And like, nope, nobody would. But like, I, I think, you know, they're, they're just some sort of obvious things. Like my, my daughter, for instance, like has decided she wants to go be a surgeon. And like, I think surgeon is like a pretty good job. Uh, like we, we do not have a, yeah, sort of robotics exponentials right now. Uh, like we've got a cognitive uh, exponential. And, and so like I think all of the – like the world is just sort of full of these jobs where, um, you know, really you know, affecting change on a physical system, like doing something in the physical world, like all of those things, uh, like we will need 
probably many, many more of them than we have right now, like particularly in medicine, like nurses, surgeons, physical therapists, people who you know work in nursing homes. Like we, we have a you know, rapidly aging population. And so like the burdens on the healthcare system are going to get much higher. And, you know, I do think that AI is going to have some pretty substantial productivity impacts. Uh, but like, you know, maybe it's just enough productivity impact to like, you know, make room for all of the other net new things that we will have to have there. You know, and so I, I think, you know, we got this weird thing in the United States where like we apportion less dignity and respect to like jobs like the ones that my dad had uh, than we should. Um, you, know, and, you know, I lived in Germany for a little while and Germany is a little bit different on this front. Like you can, you know, you, you can go be a machinist in Germany and, you know, like that's a really great career and something that your parents are, you know, celebrate. So like, I think they're like all of these careers, like, you know, electricians and machinists and, you know, solar installation technicians and I mean, just so many things that we're going to need, like, especially because we're going to have to rebuild our entire uh, power generation and distribution system, like in our children's lifetimes. Um, so like all of those jobs, I think are super important. And then I, I would argue even that all of the creative stuff like the, that we do, uh, there's going to be probably more need for that in the future than less, even though the tools that we're using to do the creative work, whether it's coding or making podcasts or whatnot, are going to help us be better at it. And the reason that I say that is humans are just extraordinarily good at wanting to put humans at the center of their stories. So so like we, we right now we could be, you know, making you know, Netflix shows, uh, you know, like not Queen's Gambit, but Machine's Gambit, uh, like about, you know, a, a fleet of computers play, playing chess among themselves uh, because they're all better than the than the very best human. Uh, nobody wants to watch that. Like the technology is probably good enough right now where you could have superhuman Formula One closed uh, track drivers and Formula One cars that could, you know, do things that humans can't do. Nobody wants to watch that. Um, yeah, and like you even go back before computers, like forklifts are stronger than people. You could like go have a strongman or a strong person competition that was about like which forklift could lift the most weight. Like nobody cares about that. Like we care about humans. Like what are we saying? What do we care about? Like what are we trying to express to everyone else? Like and nothing about that's going to change. Nothing. I think that's why people watch The Real Housewives of Dubai. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and so like and and I don't again like I I don't want to paint too rosy a picture. Uh, every time you have a major technology platform or paradigm shift, like there's disruption. But like what we know from every one of these disruptions is you have like actually a surprising degree of need for human occupation occupation, uh, like all of the, you know, the industrial revolution predictions about, you know, four hour work weeks, and we're all going to live lives of leisure is bullcrap. Um, yeah, like just hasn't happened. And I think some people may say it hasn't happened because, you know, the system, you know, the system, uh, like doesn't want it to happen. But like, I think a lot of it is because, uh, like, we actually like doing things. 
Yeah. And there's a lot to do. I guess uh, on that note, what, what are some of the areas you're most excited about going forward in terms of the coming year of AI? Or, you know, big research areas or big product areas or things that, you know, you're very optimistic about? I think sort of two things. Just um, I think this will be the maybe the great first year of foundation model deployments where you're just going to see like lots and lots of companies launch, lots of people trying a bunch of ideas. You're going to see all of the big tech companies will have substantial things that they're uh that they're going to be building um you know like I, I got predictions about what other folks will do but you know like it will touch all of microsoft's uh product portfolio like the way that you will interact with our software will be substantially different uh by the end of this calendar year than it was uh coming in uh, and i think that'll be true for everyone i think it it changes some of the uh, nature of the competition that you've got between big tech companies. And like, I think it creates new opportunities for small uh, tech companies to come and drive wedges and to, you know, get footholds and do interesting things. Um, you know, one of the things that Sam Altman and I have talked about a lot is like, I, I suspect that this year, like the next trillion dollar company gets founded. Um, it won't be obvious which, uh, you know, which it is, but like, um, we're, we're overdue, like long overdue. And, and then I think, you know, what you're going to see technically this year is, uh, I, I do think that you will have things like, um, the red pajama project, uh, is like this and, and they're going to be a bunch of others like it, uh, will make really good progress on building more capable open source models. Um, yeah, and hopefully, Hopefully the community will help build some of the safety uh, safety solutions that you will need to accompany those things when you d deploy them. Uh, but like technically, I think you're just going to see amazing progress there. And then like it's just yeah, the the, the frontier will keep expanding out. Um, yeah, we we don't have OpenAI doesn't have GPT V and wide distribution, but like it'll get to wide distribution at some point, and then I distant future and so like you'll have these like mul very powerful multimodal models the same way that having gbd4 uh admitted like all of this exciting energy around new things that you could do with it like having a having a model that can like take visual inputs uh, and like reason over them like will also admit a whole bunch of new things uh that are going to be very exciting so i don't know like that that's like i, I just think the, the the theme of this year is going to be like progress and activity like almost too much to track like i'm, I'm gonna need a i'm gonna need a co-pilot just to like pay attention to all of this stuff and like make sure i'm not missing important things because i feel like i'm i'm at the and you all as investors and as people who are watching this closely must feel the same thing it's like um how do i make sure i don't miss like you know the next important thing how do i see it as soon as humanly possible Actually, just to make completely sure, if you are starting the next trillion dollar company in our listener base this year, please call me and Alad and, and Kevin too. <laughs> um, yeah. Wrapping up now, is is there anything else you would want to touch on, Kevin? Um, I, look, I think the dialogue that we're having right now around regulation is actually really quite important. So a as we're recording this, Sam Altman was testifying in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on uh, like Tuesday of this week. Um, I think more of those conversations are a good thing. I think 
as fast as things are moving, like you really will need the technology community to come together and to agree on some sensible things that we can do before the regulation even is in place. And I think that's all important and not a thing. Like the, the thing that none of us should be doing at this point is sort of like looking at the prospect of regulation and saying, oh my God, this is a, you know, this is like a pain. Uh, like, I don't want to deal with this. Like the fact that there is a desire for it is like a very good signal that the things that we're working on actually matter because like nobody's trying to regulate frivolous things. And like the purpose of regulation is to make sure that you can build a solid trusted foundation for things that you know, may be become ubiquitous in society. Like if you think of this like electricity, for instance, you want to strike the right balance between allowing the technology to develop and make progress and flourish. But like you also need to make sure that your electric power generators are built safely and you don't allow people to wander in and like stick their finger on the electrode and disintegrate themselves. And like you want to make sure that, you know, the distribution of electricity is coordinated and that, you know, when it comes into your house, uh, like it doesn't burn your house down. And when you, uh, you know, like you plug your appliances into the wall that, you know, they function as as expected. And so, like, I, I think that is, you know, a similar way. Like, it, there's not going to be one size fits all. Like, I think the most of the stuff that people ought to be thinking about is deployments, uh, like, Making sure that, like, as you deploy the technology, getting, you know, the requirements and the expectations right there is the most important thing. Um, and then, you know, these big engines that we're building that are the, like, the largest of the foundation models, like, you know, making sure that, you know, you, you have a set of safeguards around those. But, like, also the way that we're building these things, they don't they don't get distributed to the world, uh, like, by themselves. Uh, like, there's a whole layer of things uh, on top of them to, like, render them safe. Uh, and then a whole set of things per application, per deployment that we do to, like, make the deployment safe. And so, like, you know, I, I think everybody... Like all the startups, uh, like everyone in the open source community, everybody ought to be thinking about these things. Like, how am I doing my part to make sure that we are creating as much space as possible for these optimistic uh, uses? And like we are deterring as many of the harmful ones as possible. Yeah, I've been impressed by the degree to which the community has self-acted from very early days in terms of AI safety and approaches to that. And so... I know OpenAI has done stuff really early, Anthropic has, Google has, Microsoft has. You know, I feel like a lot of the main players have actually been, you know, remarkably thoughtful about this area and, you know, keen to make sure that it's done properly. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the thing that I will say is we fiercely compete with a whole bunch of these folks. Uh, but, like, one of the things that I don't do is, like, look at any of those companies that you just named and, like, worry that they're going to do something that, uh, like, is, like, I take myself out of my role as CTO of Microsoft and like just think about Kevin Citizen of the World. Like I Kevin Citizen of the World is not worried about like what my competitors are gonna do to like do something unsafe. Like I'm just not. Thanks so much for being with us, Kevin. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for the time. That's great. 